When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Long-time followers of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future may have picked up on the fact that I'm dyslexic, a detail that becomes even more evident if you read my Substack. While some people label dyslexia as a business superpower, as Richard Branson has done, it's perhaps easier to declare such sentiments when you're worth several hundred million quid and own your very own private island. Growing up, and especially in the early stages of my career, I didn't always perceive dyslexia as a superpower. However, I have come to recognize its advantages. Over time, things have changed for the better. Our understanding of dyslexia and various forms of neurodiversity has significantly improved. Much credit for this progress should go to our guest today, Dan Harris, who has served as a director at Deloitte for an impressive 22 years. Three years ago, Dan initiated the Neurodiversity in Business Global Charity, dedicated to supporting neurodivergent professionals and fostering a more inclusive and comprehensive understanding of neurodiversity in the workplace. In this episode, we delve into the valuable contributions neurodiverse individuals can bring to an organization. On to today's episode. I found neurodiversity in business uh, out of a measure of frustration about the change that I could make in society acting uh, bilaterally. Um, the driver, the, the passion for me on this topic was my little boy. Um, we call him the Joshy Man. And he is, you know, he's quite famous now as a neurodiversity activist, bless him. He's a non-speaking autistic boy of 10. And I was projecting forward, Jimmy, to the type of society that I wanted him to grow up in. And I felt, having had 20 plus years in the corporate world, that actually this could be a great example of where businesses lead society. And what was the moment you decided that I'm going to go on this full time? Because clearly it's been an interest for a long while, but it's now that you're really pursuing it. Right. Um, I was sitting in McDonald's, actually. We were getting a, a lovely happy meal, which he really enjoys. And I had a very hurtful comment made by one of the employees. Um, Joshy was sitting at the uh, table um, and he was clapping his hands because he was so excited that I was bringing him his chicken nuggets. Um, and um, the the employee said to me, gosh, you know, don't feed him after midnight. Um, some of your viewers will be old enough to remember the the cultural restaurants, which is back from the Gremlins movie. Uh, do, you, do you remember that, Jimmy? No, I don't. Explain oh, that to us. So the Gremlins, are, you know, that was a very famous movie in the 80s. You're clearly too young, Jimmy, to remember this. But... Um, it's uh, it, the, the analogy there was that um, 
they, they these gremlins got very naughty if they were fed after midnight, right? So maybe maybe it's ringing some bells. But mm. um, so that that really upset me. I went to the car and I had a little kind of cry to myself, and I thought. I'm not willing to accept this. Um, I don't think uh, just because my little boy's autistic, he should be discriminated again against. But also, I wanted to make the workforce neuro-inclusive. So that was my kind of genesis moment. And talk to us about the different types of neurodiversity, because diversity as a topic has been around for a number of years in business, but it is becoming much more in terms of socioeconomic diversity, but also neurodiversity that you're leading. Talk to us about the different types of neurodiversity that are out there. Yeah, well, look, I'm really glad you started with that because um, neurodiversity encompasses a whole spectrum of human neurotypes. Now, what does a neurotype mean? It just means um, a different type of brain. So the most simple way I could express this, Jimmy, is cognitive diversity and i think that's a beautifully simple concept and i think most of the the most interesting stuff in life is is kind of simple right um so um i want to make a point though here is that what we shouldn't be doing is falling back on that old way of thinking of the medical model you must have a diagnosis you must have a condition attached to yourself um if we were to talk in that mind frame, we'd be talking about autism spectrum, spectrum condition, ADHD, dyslexia, dyscalculia, um, uh, Tourette's, for example. Um, but what's really important, and, and this is something I'm really proud of what NIB is achieving and other MD activists, is that we're moving away from that medical model into the social model. The social model being one that actually says it's society that disables us, it's the workplace that disables us rather than us inherently. So I love to kind of classify neurodiversity as this really broad condition uh, topic, um, which has uh, no requirement to have medical diagnosis. It's just about differences in the way our brains operate. What examples have you got of where particular businesses have been able to upskill their workforce by taking a cognitive aware approach? Sure. Well, first thing I'd say, Jimmy, is that there are very few examples of organisations that are doing this well. Um, bless them, there are lots of organisations who are now talking the talk and where we need to get to is, is walking that walk. Um, so I would call out a few organisations who have got a proactive neurodiversity at work programme. So, for example, um, JP Morgan had a, a report a few years ago which talked about the uh, increased productivity of uh, neurodivergent employees and the fact they were around 160% more productive than their neurotypical, which means non-neurodivergent, um, employees. The thing I keep coming back to, Jimmy, and I know you understand this really well as well, is that um, we should not just be talking about the efficiency of our workforce, right? Um, we, we should be looking at this at a macro level. When you consider the neurodiversity employment gap, um, and look, if, if we take autism as an example, if we say that the common statistic around 23% of autistic adults are in full-time employment. Um, look, there's a massive macro impact. Forget the, the organization itself. 
on a macro level, we're talking about a lifetime of benefits. We're talking about a lifetime of increased healthcare costs. We're talking about um, these adults dying um, 10, 15 years earlier than their neurotypical counterparts. So um, aside from that kind of efficiency point, I think there's a moral imperative and there's also an economic imperative aside from the legal requirement not to discriminate. Totally. But also these people have amazingly special skills as well, right? The part of the challenge is that we don't know how to harness some of them. So, for example, I remember getting a tour of um, GCHQ, Government Communication Headquarters, um, when I worked in Downing Street and then saying that actually we have a lot of neurodiverse talent here and because uh, uh, you know, it requires very intense work and you know sometimes pulling together sort of huge numbers and spreadsheets etc and that pattern recognition as well so i do think it's important to kind of outline you know some of the some of the benefits because you're right there's a moral case but also you know there's there's a business case as well yeah i think that's that's a fair challenge jimmy and i think what i was looking to do there was just counterbalance that narrative around efficiency of workforce but let, let's absolutely talk to this so um, neurodiversity has been kind of sat in the too hard to deal with bucket for, for many years. So we are light years behind other areas of diversity and inclusion, um, such as gender balance, sexuality, ethnicity. We're starting to focus on socioeconomic, aren't we? But let's let's talk a little bit about the associated strengths of neurodivergent folks. So um Let's let's talk about autism, first of all. So, you know, autistic people, we have that um, terrible cultural reference point of Rain Man in in the the, the movie. Um, but actually, if you unpack that um, and we should only talk very, very kind of narrowly, and I'll give this a caveat in a second. If we unpack that, the differences that autistic people show and demonstrate in social interaction, sensory processing and communication where they manifest themselves in the workplace is often, and again, I give that caveat, often um, incredibly productive, detailed processing skills. So where um, neurotypicals may not see a pattern or where they may take some time to organise data or they may not see the kind of complicated correlation, um, autistic people can often get right to the nub of the issue. And let's be real here. Um, the, the, the Second World War was won through autistic people, right? Um, GCHQ, full of autistic people and dyslexic people, for example, we would not have cracked the enigma um, without that skill base. And, and GCHQ is something that I think we in the UK should be really proud of. Um, and actually, they were, they were one of our founding members at NIB. And just give us an idea. You touched on there about sort of essentially about one in four people being in work that are autistic. But just give us an example and uh, an idea of the numbers involved when it comes to neurodiverse people. What are the what, what percentage of the population is it, etc.? So I kind of just repeat that easy line that we are the one in five. Um, so the the estimates based on medical data and workplace data is that 20% of the UK population is neurodivergent. Now, that actually rises sharply in um, science, technology, you know, mathematical type careers, as you can imagine. 
So if we break that down, that, that's kind of 13 and a half million people in the UK. That's just such a huge number. Um, and I don't think people are cognizant of that. But another really interesting thing to say is that um, two points. Number one is that neurodiversity doesn't affect just that person, the employee, the, the worker. It affects the people around them. So the nuclear family, the four people in that in that kind of nuclear family. Um, and the second thing is to kind of quantify that. If you look at that, uh, the, the, the prevalence of different topics or conditions across the UK, we're talking about you know, 700,000 people on the autistic spectrum. I'm one of them. Um, Two million people with dyslexia. Um, And these diagnosis rates are shooting up. So there's been a 780% growth in autism diagnosis over the last two decades. That's not because people are becoming more autistic. That's not because we're, we're, we're having more vaccines. That's not because we're eating different stuff, right? That's because slowly the medical profession is understanding that they've historically underdiagnosed certain parts of our population. And I'd love to come back to that a little later, Jimmy, around the intersectionality of neurodiversity. Yeah. And, and let's talk about it now, really, because I think it is one of these things, you know, in the 21st century, people have become more aware of uh, these things. But that's still potentially, a lot of these things tend to get picked up earlier in, in life, but not always the case, right? Because actually in the 80s and 90s, there wasn't as much of this around, much awareness, people being able to spot it. I remember I'm dyslexic, so it's a topic close to my heart. Um, right. But it wasn't until I was sort of actually 16, 17 that somebody said, oh, you might want to go for a test. Now, I imagine that if I were in school now, that would be picked up earlier in terms of, oh, maybe that's not right, et cetera. Let's just you know, go and go and test it out. So that must be one of the, the big reasons for, for increases. But how can people be a bit more aware of how to spot the signs? Yeah. And, and look, this is super important because as we know in so other dimensions of public life, um, the early identification and support it has disproportionate impact and dividends on that individual and society as a whole. So if, for example, you look at the um, kind of diagnosis route for uh, a young autistic person, and I'll talk about other topics in a second, um, you will find that disproportionately there are lots of gatekeepers through that process, right? And children who are demonstrating classic autistic tendencies at two or three years old they are um, potentially nonverbal or minimally verbal, we tend to enforce a lot of delays on the process. Will they grow out of it? Uh, is this just a stage? The reality is all of the research shows that if you invest in these children early on, um, you can remediate and support a lot of the challenges they're facing, contrary to the position where you delay and you ignore the challenges and then you end up paying a lot more across the total life cycle of that individual in society. Um, dyslexia is a great example as well. I, I don't just want to talk about autism. So, um, Jimmy, we're probably the same age, roughly. We probably grew up in the same decade. But I remember, um, you know, kids in my class who were dyslexic, what they were called is thick, right? They weren't called dyslexic. There was no appreciation of the fact that they may have had 
great cognitive abilities. They may have been super intelligent. They may have been incredibly empathetic. They may have been able to, um, uh, you know, solve innovative challenges. Um, but all they were known for is being sick. Now, that language, I think, has disappeared. I don't know if you would kind of agree with that, Jimmy, or, or you're seeing that change. Yeah, I think so entirely. I think there's um, there's a lot more understanding about it and people are becoming you know, much more aware of it. Yeah, well, look, it's, it's credit to people like you who are talking about this topic and giving prominence to, to neurodiversity. Also, people like, uh, you know, Matt Hancock, for example, who's mm. had a very strong focus on on diversity, um, in particular um, dyslexia. And I'm, you know, in a narrow sense, very supportive of the fact that he talks about this at every opportunity. Yeah, well, quite. And I see it, you know, <laughs> quite wanted to put myself in the Matt Hancock category, but like very much like, you know, you should talk about it because there was definitely at the beginning of my career a tendency to sort of try and, you know, hide it or sort of not even hide it, but just sort of get round it and so on. Whereas now I'm, you know, much more comfortable with saying, well, look, I, yeah, I don't want to do that particular aspect um, because partly I just find it, I, I find it draining and it sucks my energy to do things that I'm not good at, right, as, as we all do. Um, and so it's about allocating your own time resource as strongly as you can do. Um, yeah. But talk, talk to us about what you're what you're trying to to do and the different partners that you've got on board because you've had some amazing coverage in places like the Financial Times as well, right? You seem to really have a lot of momentum behind what you're doing. Yeah, it's ridiculous, Jimmy. I, I don't know if I'd have set up NIB if I'd have known how it was going to explode, but um, the it feels like it's the right time to be having this conversation and it feels like corporates are actually getting behind this finally. So. Um, you're right, you know, the Financial Times have covered us maybe half a dozen times. Um, I was on the BBC news homepage last week, ITV. Um, it, it's been all, I was front page of the Wall Street Journal, which was, was just kind of crazy for me. Um, so the reality is that um, if we accept that cognitive difference is something to be embraced and supported rather than ignored and discriminated against, that then leads us on to how can we allow our work workers to come to work and bring their authentic self? So you just touched on that topic is that you, you're now telling your team, these are the things I enjoy doing. These are the things I don't enjoy doing. Um, if you can imagine then, you know, expanding that out to the whole of our workforce, um, it's a significant undertaking, but there are significant rewards for getting this right. So our raison d'etre within neurodiversity in business is to create neuro-inclusive workplaces. We want the employer to start asking the employee, how can I, as an employer, get the best out of you as an employee? What we don't want them to be asking is, are you disabled? Drop down box. What type of disability? Drop down box. Uh, what type of neurodiversity? Drop down box, etc. We want it to be the accepted norm that cognitive diversity is a strength for a business. I mean, I've been in lots of boardrooms, Jimmy. You've been in lots more than I have, but I've never been in a boardroom that has said diversity of thought is a bad thing, right? They all say we make better decisions when we don't have groupthink, 
when we don't have identical kind of perspectives, when we have unique insights. So that's the message that we're trying to get out uh, uh, from, from NIB. And so let's say this employer listening to this thinking that they want to take on neurodiverse people. Where's, where and how is the best way to advertise roles? Well, I would say, and I don't mean to be controversial here, but I would say pause. And I'll go slowly on this. I would say don't rush out to market to hire neurodivergent folks, okay? The first and the most important thing to do is, there are three things, um, listen, listen, and listen. Um, and I borrowed that from Tony Blair, right? Um, but it, it, it's genuinely impactful in our community because the reality is, is that organizations who have fallen flat on their face by going out to hire neurodivergent folk the reason that that's happened is that the 20%, the one in five who are already in your workforce have put their hand up. Hello, I'm here. You know, why aren't you helping me? This is a suboptimal place to work at the moment. So I would say the listening point is around actually doing a study and undertaking to understand what are your neurodivergent folk telling you right now? Okay. So you could spend all of your effort in improving your recruitment pipeline, um, on improving your um, assessment techniques and the recruitment process. But actually, as you and I know, there are so many different touch points in the employee life cycle around onboarding, training, learning and development, um, performance management is super important, promotion panels, etc. All of these things are important aspects which are currently suboptimal so my question to you would be would you would you try to um kind of um, improve the seaworthy nature of the ship or would you just start throwing more people onto it and i i would say let's get let's get a plan around how we would build out a neuroinclusive workplace rather than bringing more people in because we don't just have that responsibility as shareholders or employees to our business we also have that moral responsibility. You bring these folk in and they have a bad, bad situation, that could be game over for them, right? They would never come back to the workforce. They would never have access to all of the economic independence and the growth opportunities which employment gives us. And I saw that 45% of people have left their job. Right. As a result, as a result on your website of being autistic, et cetera. I thought that was a pretty... Um... Yeah, pretty headline-grabbing statistic. It was, and, and there's lots of them. So I think what you're referring to, Jimmy, is that we did the first of its kind academic study on neurodiversity at work. So we're in a uniquely privileged position with NIB because we have the 700-odd corporate members, but then also the 30,000, 50,000 neurodivergent individuals who, who are um, part of our, our group. So we married up what the employer was telling us with what the employee was asking for. And it, there was a big disconnect, right? Um, it was really interesting to understand that actually um, things that you would think are very popular in HR speak, you know, wellness apps are everywhere, right? Um, every time, uh, you know, you have this discussion with HR, they'll point you to the wellness app and they'll point you to um, their employee support line, et cetera. The reality is, is that these things aren't particularly important. What's important is training 
of the folks who are around that neurodivergent individual. What's important is senior level executive support so that people feel empowered, as you've just done, to role model their neurodivergency, to say, I'm dyslexic, this is how I work. Um, so yeah, I would definitely say lots of interesting stuff on our research on our website. So do go to neurodiversityinbusiness.org and check it out. Um, and I see that one of those 700 corporate partners that you now have is, is McDonald's. Does that feel like a bit of a sort of full circle moment, given that that was the moment it sort of it really began to form in your mind to do this? Yeah, it did. And I, I tell this story that, um, you know, of all these big corporates that we've got on board, um, I felt like McDonald's was my biggest win, was our biggest win. Because um, number one is, as you know, a disproportionate number of our young folks start their career in, in, in McDonald's, right? We, we've all been there. Um, some of us have. Um, so this is also dealing with the point that there's a real danger in our community around neurodiversity, particularly around kind of employment, the criticism around top slicing talent, right? Um, so do we want to be in a position where we are top slicing the white male autistic talent, maybe who are from a middle class background, went to a nice school and they go into technology jobs or security, et cetera? That further marginalizes existing marginalized communities, right? Whereas what I felt like was such a big deal with McDonald's is that you get such a breadth of socioeconomic um, employees there that if you're going to get this right for them, this will have a disproportionate impact on their life. Um, they are going to be people who probably culturally and through their school career have not had the support around dyslexia or, or ADHD maybe they're coming into the workforce for the first time at 16 years old um, and having um, that appreciation that neurodiversity is appreciated is, is just huge. And um, the other thing that was really important about getting McDonald's on board was um, the fact that I spent a lot of time with the CEO, um, Alistair McCrow, and he's a great guy, um, CEO of UK and Ireland. And, and we were just talking really in depth about what we could do in McDonald's across the next few years. So I'm I'm really excited about what we may be announcing there sometime. Well, a teaser for the uh, for the future. And, and what are your kind of hopes? Like how do you benchmark success? Um, success for us is that we are so successful that we put ourselves out of business. So, um, you know, people, people should just stop using the, the neurodiversity word because actually, we now appreciate that we are all different. Just as you have a slightly different shade of hair and I've got a few more pounds and maybe a bit more stocky, um, it's just that diversity of cognitive thought and processing. It's the differences in the way that we process information, store it, that we communicate. So I would say the measure of success is that we now depathologize. we remove the stigma from neurodiversity. And I've got a really great example. So just as, um, you know, nowadays in the corporate world, it's perfectly acceptable for me in my workforce to tell my boss, Friday, 4.30, I'm going to be leaving early. I want to go pick up my little girl from karate club, right? That's normal. I think you and me as um, kind of family people and, and lots of business people, men and women, very comfortable in doing that. 
what's still unacceptable in the corporate world is to put your hand up in a meeting and say, sorry, I'm just really not feeling this. You know, the way that this communication is working is not optimized for me. You haven't sent an agenda in advance. There's no one taking minutes. We haven't kind of recapped key points as we've gone through. Um, you haven't committed to sending me a written summary at the end. We haven't clarified onus of actions and deadlines, etc. That kind of clarity of communication, and this is a really important point, Jimmy, you get this right for your neurodivergent folk, you get this right across your workforce. So I like to think we're a little bit the canary in the mine here. Um, and if you try to understand how to get the best out of your neurodivergent teammates, actually that just has dividends across your workforce. And what is some of the best content that people can go and consume about this if they want to learn more about neurodiversity in the workplace? Yeah, thank you for asking. So we were reflecting on the criticism we heard from the large volume of our corporate members, which is the ND at work uh, kind of methodology guides. It's it's kind of diffuse. It's all over the place. It's overlapping, out of date, weren't really sure about the quality assurance. So we developed something called the ND Resource Hub, which um, along with everything we do, we give away for free. So that's on our website as well, uh, neurodiversity.org. And um, that is our effort to bring together the best quality material according to your different interest area and your different industry. So I would point you to that. The second thing is um, we post every day on, on LinkedIn. It's our primary platform for the corporate world. Um, we are trying to get that positivity of messaging out there. For example, today we had a fantastic post about my visit to Barclays office up in Glasgow super impressed jimmy with what they've done they have removed the stigma around neurodiversity in their campus because they've designed neuroinclusive behaviors into the design of the fabric of the building and that's huge for us um so i would say follow us on linkedin follow me dan harris on linkedin and you'll see every day we're pumping out kind of information and good content which we believe is shifting the narrative in the corporate world Terrific. And we will be posting about it on LinkedIn on our channels as well, so people can follow me there as well. Just because I'm slightly worried that Dan Harris is a more common name than Jimmy McLaughlin in terms of trying to find the right one on LinkedIn if people aren't aware of you already. So, uh, Dan, thanks so much for coming on Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. We've been talking about it for ages, and it's been a real pleasure to have you on and, and talk about how you made the jump from corporate career to founding this charity, which is so important in terms of maximizing the future potential of the UK's workforce. Great, well, Jimmy, I've really enjoyed being here and thank you for being a leader on this topic.